to introduce uh, a friend of mine that's here this morning, and I, I don't like to embarrass anybody, but if you're a friend of mine, I'm happy to embarrass you on a Sunday morning. So Kevin Oberlin and his wife, Rachel, are kind of right down here, sitting next to Randy. Two of his kids are here, and I think are two, the other two kind of in the nursery. They're not kind of in the nursery. They are in the nursery. Kevin and I, uh, 20, I was trying to do the math this morning, like 22 or 23 years ago, Kevin and I worked together uh, at Bob Jones University. We were on the Dean of Men's staff together at Bob Jones University. We were dorm counselors back then, both of us single um, men back in those days, and we worked together um, at, there at Bob Jones University, and then through the years, uh, we've gone different ways, and Kevin uh, served as a missionary in the country of India for a while, the country of Singapore for a while, somewhere in that process. Well, before you went, uh, the Lord brought him a good thing, and he met his wife, Rachel, and uh, God has blessed them with four kiddos. Kevin is now back at Bob Jones University, and he teaches in the Bible department, teaches in the seminary. He's actually the dean of the School of Religion at Bob Jones University, and there's a connection for our church even with that specific role at Bob Jones. Um, so is your dad here? Is James here? I didn't see. Where's James? Okay, so Kevin occupies the role that Thurman Wisdom was in however many years ago. So Dr. Wisdom is James's brother-in-law, and uh, Dr. Wisdom was the dean of the School of Religion uh, at Bob Jones University way back when. And Kevin, of course, knows Dr. Wisdom well. And then uh, now Kevin is serving there. And he and his family are left Greenville back on Wednesday, are headed to Albuquerque um, tomorrow. You need to be in Albuquerque, right? And on the way, he, uh, he texted me early this last week and said, hey, man, we're coming across the country. Can we join you for church? And I said, no. And then they uh, showed up anyway. So I, you know, I'm not sure exactly what to do to run somebody off. But anyway, it's actually an honor. It really is, brother. It's an honor to have you and your family here. Uh, I have uh, just incredibly fun and even some really funny memories from the years that we served together um, there at Bob Jones. So be sure to say hello to Kevin and his family before they, uh, before they leave here this morning. And uh, you can go ahead and start turning in your Bibles. Your Bible's probably automatically open to the book of Exodus now. Uh, this morning, we are concluding our study of the book of Exodus, and I'm going to have to admit that it is bittersweet for me. Um, for many of you, you're like, good heavens, I, I, my, best, my best count is 54 sermons uh, that it has taken us to get through the book, the book of Exodus. And uh, there have been some, a few people at other churches that, as I've expressed to them what we've done in the book of Exodus, they've looked at me with this look of like mix a mixture of entertainment and horror and are you serious that you took that long to, to go through the book of Exodus and uh, I've just had to to kind of trust that the feedback that I'm getting from many of you is actually accurate like yeah it's okay man we're, we're learning some really wonderful things about our God and about our Bibles and about our story in the story of Exodus and so uh, I really, it has been a deep blessing for me. I've, I've told you that um, Exodus became my favorite book of the Bible. I have loved the gospel according to Exodus. And uh, we're going to conclude our time here together this morning. I, I remember years ago when I was reading through the Bible uh, one year, and I got to, I think, it's the end of, I think it's the end of Deuteronomy that records the death of Moses. Uh, and then, of course, Joshua takes the people into the land of, uh, of Egypt, or into the land of Israel. And I remember when you're reading uh, and for whatever reason, the death of Moses really hit me. I was like, oh, man, we've been together for so long, and, like, you're dying, don't leave me, right? Like this real emotional scene from a movie. 
or something. And uh, I feel a little bit that way this morning, quite honestly, as we conclude the book of Exodus. Like, oh, no, what am I going to do? I'll have to find some other book of the Bible. I mean, there's only 65 others. I'm not sure which one to go to next. We'll figure it out. Before we get to the book of Exodus, though, um, uh, many of you are aware that I was gone. Uh, Angie and I were, were gone for a few weeks. And, and during, those, uh, during the last month or so, uh, there have been things that have happened in our world, uh, kind of significant cultural things that I want to take just a minute before we get to the sermon this morning to just address briefly, <coughs> excuse me, from, from God's word, give us a little bit of a grid about how to think about two things in particular, and I want to kind of try them to get, uh, tie them together. So, you know, a, a month or so ago uh, here in the state of Texas, uh, we experienced another horrible mass shooting in, in uh, Uvalde, Texas. Um, a number of people killed, a number of people injured, and we look at something like that, and especially the loss of young lives, and often we'll refer to those young lives as innocent lives, and, and we look at something like that and we think, man, how, you know, what, what's going on there? What does God do? What is God doing in a, in a set of circumstances in a situation like that? And that, that does, there's a lot of questions that a, that a situation like that brings up for us, um, and our hearts grieve and really mourn in, in a set of circumstances like that, right? Like many of us have children that are the ages of, of many of those that were, that were killed in that horrible uh, shooting. So that's something that we grieve. And then here, just in the last few days, there's something that has come about in the news that's of incredible, that gives us great reason to rejoice, right? The Supreme Court's overturning of Roe versus Wade um, is, a, is a huge moment for for those of us who are um, sanctity of life advocates. And the Supreme Court's overturning Roe v. Wade is, is a, a huge cultural, historic moment for us. And we rejoice that there's movement in the right direction. And some of you, probably all of you, are at least aware that something significant is happening there. And you probably understand that this does not mean that all of a sudden abortion is illegal. There is still a lot of work for us to be done. Brothers and sisters, it's not time for us to cross our arms or sit back. It's not time for us to cease caring for the orphans in, in our community. Um, we, are, we are people who believe in the sanctity of all life. All lives matter. Right? I'm not trying to make a, a tricky political statement. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Young and old immigrant and native-born, all lives are precious. And so as God's people, it is important for us to continue to stand and to fight. But as we consider even the good news about what has happened there in the Supreme Court, we're also still aware that millions of lives were killed, have been killed, and, and continue even to, to be killed. And so these issues might raise questions regarding and I'm going to try to kind of narrow it into to one, one question. I'm not going to be able to answer all of our questions this morning, but I, I did want us to give us some, some, I wanted to do a quick kind of Bible, a Bible outtake uh, for our thinking this morning. What happens to the soul of a little one who dies? What happens to the soul of a little one who dies? Um, Many in this room, as I look around this room, many in this room have experienced the, the death of a, of a young one. Um, and, and so let's, let, let me just, let me give you, I'm going to try to give you six biblical arguments as to why I, I believe that when a little one dies, God receives them into heaven. Th there is some 
difference of opinion amongst pastors and theologians. There's some different ways that people will nuance these. I don't have the answer for every question. But let me, let me give you, and, I, and if you want to take some notes here, and again, I'm not, this isn't even my sermon yet, but uh, let me give you six reasons why, uh, and the, the cumulative effect of these arguments are what leads me to the belief that God uh, brings the death of a little one, uh, brings the soul of a little one to heaven when they die. In Romans, and if you're visiting with us, we don't normally start this way. Um, this is a really strange way for me to start uh, the, the preaching time. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul describes recipients of general revelation as being without excuse. They can, they, can, they can see in the creation that there is a God and that he is powerful and he is real. And, and Paul is actually using that to say, because you can see in creation that there is a God and that he is powerful, you are without excuse when God brings judgment against you. And of course, An infant is not capable of seeing the creation and understanding that there is a God and that he is powerful and that that he is um, in existence. Number two, Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 39 says uh, uh, that that little ones have no knowledge of good or evil. And while this doesn't prove that they themselves are sinless, the Bible does teach that we are conceived in sin. While it doesn't teach that they are sinless, it, only, it does teach that they have no knowledge of the difference between good and evil. There's no awareness of, of a little one that, of what is sin and what is righteousness, of what is good and what is evil. I think it's in, uh, is it in the book of, Jonah, where the little, the younger described as not knowing their right hand from their left hand, there is this kind of awareness of they don't know anything yet. Number three, and I'm, you'll notice I'm giving you scriptural passages. That, that, that's the only place I can find argumentation for. It doesn't matter what I feel, right? It doesn't matter what we feel on this issue. We have to be careful there. We can't create a God of our own, of our own creation. We have to let God be God. Number three, Sam... Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't write down whether it was 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel. If someone knows, you can shout it out. One of the Samuels, chapter 12, verse 15 and following. And this is actually a key passage. Can someone check me on that if it's 1 or 2 Samuel? Where David, after the death of his young son, says, Since he has died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Thank you. 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23 Again, I'm giving you my personal understanding of Scripture and my personal opinion on this, uh, on this topic. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, in my opinion, is the strongest argumentation. David is making this comment that um, my, my child who is dead cannot come to me, but I will go to him. And David is using this as a comfort and a balm for his soul. He's not just saying, my kid died and I'm going to die. I don't think. I don't think he's just saying, my kid died and is buried, and I'm going to die and be buried. There seems to be, in David's words, a comfort for his own soul, an awareness that my little one has died and gone on, and I will go to be reunited with my, with my little one. Uh, number four, um, I'll give you several passages here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. 
Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and 12. I can give all of this to you later. There's the consistent testimony of Scripture that people are judged based uh, on, excuse me, on the basis of sins committed voluntarily and consciously in the body. In other words, eternal judgment seems to be based on conscience, conscious rejection of divine revelation. Again, whether it's the divine revelation that's explicit in creation or explicit in the Word of God or written on our hearts and our conscience, this is what people um, are judged based on according to Scripture. Um, it, unpacking that point a little bit, let me, let me read to you what uh, one, one theologian says. If a little one, if a deceased infant were sent to hell on no other account than that of original sin, which I do believe that, again, we are conceived in sin, that we are, we, because of the federal headship of Adam in our lives, we are born as sinners, right? So if an infant were sent to hell on no other account than that of original sin, there would be a good reason to the divine mind for the judgment. But the child's mind would be a perfect blank as to the reason of its suffering. Under such circumstances, that child would know suffering, but it would have no understanding of the reason for its suffering. It could not tell its neighbor, nor could it tell itself, why it was so awfully smitten. And consequently, the whole meaning and significance of its suffering would be a conscious enigma. The very essence of penalty would be absent, absent and justice would be uh, disappointed of its vindication. So those are thick words there, but the idea, I think, is, is understood by us. Uh, and then lastly, okay, I'm sorry, I have, I have uh, five points here. Lastly, um, I, I, let me give you two passages, Psalm 86, verse 15, and 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. We need to be extremely careful not to fashion a God who is what we want him to be. If the Bible explicitly taught that infants go to hell because they are conceived in sin, then we would believe it and affirm it, knowing, knowing that God is good and righteous and merciful and gracious. But the Bible not only does not explicitly teach that, but I believe implicitly teaches the other. And in fact, I believe that based on the scriptures we've already looked at, that that's not the case. The character of God is abundantly clear in Scripture. And yes, it is clear that God is a God who punishes unrighteousness. He punishes sinners. But He's also a God. Psalm 86, verse 15, You, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, He is a God who is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Others of you may want to include arguments about John the Baptist leaping in the womb and being filled with the Spirit even before he was born. There's an, there's, uh, an argument to be teased out there. It's not one that I find quite as compelling for arguing for this point, but uh, nevertheless, I, I'm aware that that argument exists as well. As I talk about these things, it may raise more questions for you than it is answered, but um, this may not and certainly doesn't answer every single question that we have. I believe that we can look at what is explicitly taught in Scripture, that we can imply some things that, in my opinion, are very clear 
and we do have the clear teaching of who the kind of God that God is. And so whether we consider the you know, shooting where young children are, are killed or the, the, the horrors of abortion throughout uh, uh, human history and really in, in really um, condensed ways over you know, the last 50 or 60 years, um, it's my belief based on these arguments from the word of God that God is gracious and merciful to those little ones who die. I had uh, a, a member of our church reach out to me this week and, and express that in light of some of these things that are going on in our world, it might be good to talk about that. And I, I just really agreed with him and thought, I, I do think it would be wise for us to take a minute and look into the scriptures and let God's word be what informs us uh, regarding this topic and this issue. Okay, I know that's a really heavy way for us to start. I didn't know any other way to kind of segue into, hey, let's talk about something really heavy here for a minute. Um, but I think that question may be on the hearts and minds of, of many in this room, and, um, and I wanted to address it. And I do want to, again, in light of all this, brothers and sisters, we have been praying that God would move, the, that, the, that the tide would begin to change and move on this issue of abortion. And praise God, it seems as if it is moving. Um, and I, I mean, I looked, I looked uh, on one news site uh, this morning just to kind of see what the liberal media is portraying. And I mean, you know, the liberal media would be portraying this as the demise of America as we know it. And brothers and sisters, don't you believe it? I think there's a majority in this country who still is aware and knows that this is right. This is a battle of good and evil. And, and, and it is our responsibility to love um, there are friends of mine, there are friends of yours, there are those who have been a part of this church in the past, there are, there, there are those who are a part of our church today who issues, these sins are part of our past. And, and yet we find forgiveness in Christ. We know what the word of God teaches us regarding right and wrong on this issue. Brothers and sisters, let's advocate for life, the life of the unborn, the life of the elderly, the, 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 the right to life of red and yellow, black and white. Um, let's, uh, let's be people who, are, who continue to uh, advocate for these pro-life issues. Okay, I'm going to pray to conclude that and to give us a little bit of a transition now into uh, concluding the book of Exodus. Father, we do rejoice. We rejoice to know uh, what you have done here in the Supreme Court this week. I pray that um, that we would that we would take the news and move forward with it appropriately now that it would actually embolden us for for greater uh, effectiveness and influence and opportunity for you in this world. I pray that we would be people as Matt mentioned in Sunday school this morning, that we would be very safe people for people who do hold to what they would call the right to an abortion, for them to come and, and have conversation with us about it. For those who have, who do have this as part of their story and as, as part of their life experience, Lord, that they, that they would feel safe with us when we discuss these issues with them. Father, we do pray that you would continue to move the tide in an area of rightness and righteousness. Thank you for answering so many prayers that were answered in the... Uh, in the decision that the Supreme Court made. And now, Lord, as we on the state and local level continue to, to um, seek righteousness in these ways, we pray that you would continue to move. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 40. 
the final passage in the book of Exodus. Let's read it together. You can remain seated there and I'll read it out loud. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, on the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And by the way, all scholars agree, this would have been like on the one-year anniversary of their deliverance from Egypt. God, God, it's, this is like a New Year's celebration kind of event for the people of Israel. You shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with a veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it, and you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Now, isn't it fun after however many sermons it took us to preach through all the furniture of the tabernacle? Isn't it fun to hear about, okay, like Moses is setting up house. Like we know what these furniture items are. They're not just weird cryptic kind of like, well, God needed something in his house. And so he made these, uh, you know, random pieces of furniture. We, we see how each one of the, we remember how each of these pieces of furniture points us ahead to Jesus Christ and the work that he's going to do to redeem humanity from sin. Verse nine, then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all of its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons. So Moses is anointing the stuff of the tabernacle. Now Moses is anointing the people of the tabernacle. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest you shall bring his sons also, put coats on them, and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout the generations. That's why we talk about the ironic priesthood. Not ironic, ironic. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. In verse 16 and following are Moses doing what God just told Moses to do. Skip ahead. Verse 33. He erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Many of you know the incredible joy it is to do something, to finish it, to be done, to stand back and kind of pat your hands off and know I've finished this work. It doesn't happen very often, actually, in real life, does it? But Moses finished the work. Verse 34 through 38 are where we're going to focus our attention as we conclude this morning. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle that he just finished making. He was not able to enter the tent of meeting because it wasn't his. The cloud had settled on it 
was somebody else's house now, right? A builder doesn't get to march into a house he just built any time, right? Matt and Jordan are having a house built. You're not, he's not going to have a key once it's all said and done. He can't just go in, right? Moses builds the thing, but it's not Moses' house. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of in the sight, they could see, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys, throughout all of their journeys from this time forward until they're in the promised land, throughout all of their journeys, the people of Israel can lift up their eyes and they can see God dwells with us. Years ago, I had the privilege of going on a hunting trip when I lived in California. Um, and we were going into the Sierra Nevada mountains to hunt black-tailed deer. It's been a little while since I've used a hunting illustration. And, uh, and so we were, we were taking uh, pack mules. By a little while, I mean like last week. It's been like a whole week since I've used a hunting illustration. Um, we, had, we had pack mules, and we were going to go deep into the Sierra Nevada mountains to go on this hunting trip. And there was a specific camp that had already been set up. There was a place that was already prepared for us. Okay, you, you know I'm getting ready. I'm illustrating something, okay? So there was a place that was prepared for us, and we had plans to go there, but none of us that were in the group going there had ever been there before. We were hunting through an outfitter. Thankfully, the outfitter didn't simply say, there's a destination out there. There's a place that's prepared for you. Good luck finding it. Go that way. Those of you who know me and my abilities to navigate, you know that I would still today be lost in the Sierra Nevada mountains if it was up to me to somehow navigate my way to something like this. Thankfully, that outfitter who had prepared a place for us sent us with a guide. And that guide knew exactly where we were going. And that guide stayed with us the entire way there. And all I had to do, I could lift up my eyes and I could see the guide is with us. He's dwelling with us. He's leading us. He's getting us from point A to point B. And the, the trip there was hot and it was relatively long and it was somewhat treacherous. But we got there because there was a guide who was with us. And listen, while I was on the way, there were a few times where we were, you know, in tight mountain spots or, the, you know, a cliff on one side, that sort of thing. There were, there were a few moments where I, where I thought, man, this is a little bit sketchy. But I would look up and see, but I'm, I'm with the guide. Like, I'm, I'm going the right way and in the right direction. A little bit nerve-wracking for me, but I'm okay because the guide is with me. The outfitter sent a guide to get the people from the wilderness wandering to the place that had been prepared for us. I hope the illustration is really abundantly clear. The story, the story of Exodus is this story of God's people being hopelessly in bondage to the nation of Egypt, to the wicked Pharaoh who represents Satan in the Old Testament. They, are, they, they have no way of delivering themselves, and God chooses a man, this unlikely rescuer, Moses, to go and to be used by God to deliver the people of God from the enslavement 
and they're delivered through the Red Sea. They're delivered through the waters into the wilderness where they are now God's chosen people. But they begin this time of wandering through the wilderness. And they, they don't know where they're going or how to get there. Right? It's one thing to think, okay, I know where I'm supposed to go, but I don't know how to get there. It's another thing to think, I don't know where I'm supposed to go, and I don't know how to get there. That's a big problem. The people of Israel are now delivered from all they've known for 400 years, slavery, being told daily what to do. Now they're delivered. Now they find themselves out on the other side of the Red Sea. And can you imagine this huge mass of people, and they're kind of wondering, uh, where are we supposed to go, and how are we supposed to get there? God didn't just deliver them and leave them hopelessly to wander. They're not alone. They have God dwelling and leading them. God dwells with them as they're on their way to dwell with him. You'll remember that we've kind of used as a mantra for the book of Exodus. God delivers his suffering people using an unlikely hero in order that he may dwell with them on their way to dwell with him. Delivered to dwell to dwell is how I've, that's been my most condensed way of thinking about the book of Exodus. Delivered by God to have the Holy Spirit dwell with them, on, or to have the God dwell with him in the tabernacle on their way to dwell with him. They're headed to the promised land. Delivered to dwell to dwell. God delivers his suffering people using an unlikely hero in order that he may dwell with them on their way to dwell with him delivered to dwell to dwell and as we conclude the book of exodus we're going to see the theme of the book right here in these closing verses the main point this morning is this god dwells with us on our way to dwell with him god dwells with us on our way to dwell with him god dwells with his people israel on their way to the promised land to dwell with him And God dwells with us, the New Testament people of God, as we are on our way to dwell with him. So God dwells with us on our way to dwell with him. What happens in your heart and mind when I say that? When I say God dwells with us on our way to dwell with him. Does anything jump inside of you? Is there any part of you that thinks, you know what? That's actually really good news. Well, here's what I want to do over the next 30-ish minutes. I, I want to I show us some things. I want to unpack some things from the scripture that would cause us to respond with a heart that's full of hope when we're reminded God dwells with us on our way to dwell with him. And we're just going to highlight two, two truths here. Number one, God dwells with his people. And number two, God leads his people. So he's a God who dwells, but while he's dwelling, he's not just hanging out. He's leading us somewhere. Point one, God dwells with his people. And point two, God leads his people. First point, God dwells with his people. We see here in these verses, verses 34 through 38, the the completion of the tabernacle. Moses gets done. And the way the language here in the book of Exodus works, it really is almost as if, I mean, imagine... I mean, Moses isn't using a hammer and nails and a tool belt like we, like we would use. But imagine, many of you have worked with, with tools in this way. You've got the tool belt on. Imagine Moses kind of pounding that last nail, stepping back, dropping the hammer in his tool belt. And as the hammer hits in his tool belt, 
the presence of God fills the tabernacle that he has just built. The, the language here is almost, it, it, it makes it sound like this is an immediate thing. It's done and whoom, God is dwelling with his people. And this isn't, this, this cloud theme is throughout the book of Exodus. We've seen it a number of times already. This isn't just like, oh, yeah, there's like a little bit of smoke. Or it's a little bit cloudier over the tabernacle than it is everywhere else. There is an obvious, inexplicable, miraculous cloud that is in, inside the tabernacle, above the tabernacle, engulfing the tabernacle. There was no mistaking that this was a supernatural thing. This was a type of theophany. That's a big theological fancy word that's just referring to a physical manifestation of the glory of God. There's a, there's a, there's a visible way to know that's a God thing. That's the glory of God. That's the presence of God. I can see it with my eyes. Remember the end of verse 38, in the sight of all the house of Israel, the, the people of God could see God, the presence of God, the glory of God dwelling with them, this glorious cloud this cloud that had stood, you'll remember when they, when they fled out of Egypt, right? And here they are standing in the Red Seas in front of them, and Pharaoh and his armies are quickly approaching from the other side. Oh no, what are we going to do? What does God put between them and the armies of Pharaoh? A cloud. A, a glory cloud. And then as they begin, as they get on the other side of the Red Sea, and they begin making their way into the wilderness, the Exodus, the book of Exodus describes this glory cloud that leads them from place to place. And then you'll remember the tent of meeting that God had for Moses, that Moses would build outside the camp. And Moses would go there to meet with God, and the presence of God would go and meet with Moses in that place. And the presence of God there was, uh, was visibly uh, depicted and represented as this glory cloud and then the people of Israel make their way to the foot of Mount Sinai, this trembling, thundering, volcanic-ish kind of mountain. And what represents the presence of God on the top of the mountain? A cloud. These are not coincidence. It wasn't cloudy on the days that God did cool stuff. The, the cloud represents the glorious presence of God. It is a glory cloud. I like that phrase, glory cloud. It was a glory cloud. And God is giving his people a a physical, visible manifestation of his presence with them. And throughout the old, there are other places in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 11, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. This is not just cloudy, atmospheric coincidences. This is the visible presence of the glory of God that's best described by the word cloud. We, we see, the people of Israel rather, saw the presence of God come and fill the tabernacle that they, uh, that they had created and built and made for him. God is giving his people a physical manifestation of his presence with them. Brothers and sisters, we've talked about it almost every week as we work through the book of Exodus, but God gave the people of Israel a physical, visible um, uh, representation of his glory with them 
the, the greatest physical and visible representation that God has given us of his glory came to us in a person. And he, he, was, he was born into human flesh. Jesus Christ came, and the Bible, the New Testament even uses the word, it steals language from Exodus, that Jesus came and tabernacled among us. And like the people of Israel saw the glory of God in the, the glory of the, the tabernacle, we as New Testament believers see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the full display of who God is. Jesus came and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. God dwelled with his people in the tabernacle, and God came and dwelled on earth when Jesus tabernacled among us. Jesus is the ultimate of God dwelling with man. And just like the glory of God, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. We're talking about his dwelling with us, but just he also, he also led the people of Israel. God came and dwelled on earth in the tabernacle and led God's people by the cloud moving. Jesus is the one that God sends to bring people home. It is only by faith and trust in Jesus Christ that you are led home. Jesus is the guide that brings us to the promised land. Israel only found their way to the promised land because God came to them, and we only find our way to the promised land because Christ came to dwell with us. Why does it matter that God dwells with you? Why does it matter that God dwells with you? Who dwells with you apart from God? Who are the people that dwell with you? Almost all of us have people who dwell with us. In my house, I've got five other people that I dwell with. They're in my dwelling with me. We dwell together. The word dwell starts to sound weird the more you say it, by the way. I've just been thinking about it a lot this week. I'm like, that's a weird word to say. We, all, we, we know what it is to dwell with someone else. Some of the people, and, and we, we dwell with people beyond just the immediate family members, right? In one sense, we all dwell together. Those of us who are part of this church, we dwell together. Well, dwelling with someone can be a good thing, a bad thing, a frustrating thing, a wonderful thing, an encouraging thing, right? Like the people you dwell with, are you like 100% always thrilled to dwell with the people you dwell with? Why does it matter that God dwells with us? I want to give you four reasons why I think it is an incredible joy. joy that's, there's there's got to be a better way to say that. That God dwells with us. First of all, we aren't alone. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Our greatest hurts in life are when someone forsakes us. There is nothing that hurts worse than being forsaken. Nothing. There's no, you can get your arm cut off. You can get a bad disease. You can lose a lot of money. But there is nothing that hurts like a relational hurt of being forsaken by someone. God will never forsake you. He will, he will not forsake you. There, think about the person in your life who you think is least likely to forsake you. And yet you know, because of the world that we live in, it's still possible that they would forsake me. To be alone is one of the saddest words in the English language. Unless you're a young mom and you need an afternoon to be alone, like that, in that case, that's like, that's awesome, right? But to be forsaken, that's different than being alone. 
he will, he will never forsake you. And think about this. Let's just say that there is a fellow human being that will never forsake you, but you know what's going to happen at some point? They're going to die, and they're going to leave you. And Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Like, there's some wonderful people in this room. I mean, the people on this planet that I'm the closest to are all right in here this morning. And I'm glad. I really believe that, that there are many in this room who would never forsake me. And you would do your best to never leave me. But there isn't anyone in here who can promise me that you would never leave me or forsake me. But God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. And the reason that that's encouraging is because life is hard and we do have people forsake us and we do have people leave us. And it's always the best people, Rosses. It's always the best people. There's other people who I would be happy to leave, but it's, no, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Why does it matter that God promises to dwell with us? Because we're not alone. Secondly, because we, we actually are promised his power. If I've got something big and heavy to lift, I'm going to go ask Jamie Puga to help me. And his presence with me is really encouraging to me because he's stronger than I am. If I need money in here, I'm going to go to like Abraham or one of my kids who has more money than I do. And their presence with me is going to encourage me. When we have someone who has greater resources than us, who has promised, have you ever had someone look at you and say, look, if you need anything, let me know. And you know they mean it. And they actually have the capacity to come through with what they've just promised you. If you need anything, let me know. I've never had anybody tell me that. Um, no, I'm kidding. Look, God, God is looking you in the eyes. And he's saying, look, if you need anything, let me know. God in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That power in Ephesians chapter 1 is promised to those who know God. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. We have his power. Thirdly, we have his peace. Philippians chapter 4 Verses 4 through 7, verse 4 talks about how that the Lord is at hand. The Lord is present. The Lord is dwelling with you. And verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Many of us walk through hard circumstances. I mean, I could say, raise your hand if you didn't walk through hard circumstances this week. And fully expect, no, like, no one's going to raise their hand. Everybody's walked through hard circumstances. And we have peace because God, is, Jesus Christ, is the Prince of Peace. And that peace, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Have you ever had peace when even you were aware, it doesn't make sense for me to have peace right now. The peace of God passes understanding. Amen, Sister Joy? I saw that hand. Yes, yeah. There are times where we would, even we, look at our circumstances and go, it doesn't make sense that I'm okay right now. 
That's the peace of God that passes understanding in your life. Brothers and sisters, your spouse isn't the comfort that you think they should be. Your family isn't the comfort that, they, that you think they should be. In fact, your family is part of the chaos in your life. Your pastors aren't the peace that you think they should be. Your spirit, you, bring chaos and, what's the opposite of peace? Anxiety. Right, So you're working against you, your spouse is working against you, your family's working against you, your pastor's working against you. The people that you think should be bringing peace are often the ones who are part of the chaos, and God has promised his peace will dwell with you. Why does it matter that God dwells with us? Because we aren't alone, because we have his power, because we have his peace. And it matters because we, we can bear fruit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, lists the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I want to, I want to make a, a connection here that I think is important. In the Old Testament, the people of God, God's presence amongst them was something that was visible and could be seen and was encouraging. And today we might think, well, doggone it, I wish I had something like that. I wish there was like something I could see. I wish there was a physical, visible, tangible, like I want to see that God is with me. I'm going to argue that there is something you can see that is evidence that God is with you as an individual and that God is with us as a church body. I believe Manifesting the fruit of the Spirit is something that you and I see that is evidence that God is with us. When you live in a way that is marked by love and joy and peace and patience, kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness and self-control, you are demonstrating in visible ways the presence of the Holy Spirit and the glory of God as he dwells in you and as he dwells in us. Now listen, none of us do it perfectly. But, but those of us who walk with the Lord, there, there are times, this is such a gracious gift from God, there are times where you're aware, man, my barn just blew over, but really I'm okay. I really am. My truck just burned down. But, I mean, I, I really am okay. And, and I, I mean, I know y'all well enough in here. I, I, that's just two of a lot of stories. And the fruit of the Spirit. Even you're surprised by, I've got peace. I can't exactly explain it. You know what that is? That's the fruit of the Spirit of God in your life. God dwells with you by His powerful Spirit. So God dwelled with the people of Israel, the Old Testament people of God in this glory cloud. And God dwells with the New Testament people of God in his spirit, through his spirit, by his spirit. Number two, point number two goes, is going to go a little faster than point number one. Point number two, God leads his people. God leads his people. He, he, he wasn't just this kind of cloud presence, right? And then the tabernacle was hooked to wheels, and Israel kind of pulled him around 
with him, right? Like imagine the tabernacle's moving and the cloud's kind of trailing behind it, like, you know, and then when it stops, the cloud catches up, and then when it moves, it kind of, you know, like that's, that's not how this thing works. It's the other way around. The cloud starts to move when the people of God are, when God's ready for the people of God to move. God is, is leading his people. They weren't just wandering aimlessly. When we went on our hunting trip, there was a place that was prepared for us. There was a hunting camp that we were going to, and that guide took us. He led us to that place. We didn't have to wander around the state of California till we found it. He's not just with them while they aimlessly and purposely drift in life. He's taking them somewhere. And brothers and sisters, God is leading in your life. You are not just aimlessly or purposely drifting in this life. He is taking you somewhere. And there are times, can you imagine 40 years wandering around the wilderness? The people of God at some point are going, where, like, I don't understand my story, God. I don't understand the point. I don't understand where we're going. And friends, if you've lived more than about 30 minutes you understand that you, you have those real feelings sometimes. God, where are we going? I mean, I'm, I'm committed to you. I'm doing life with you. I'm not, I, I don't doubt that you exist, but I'm not sure that you know what's best for me or what's going on with me. Have you forgot? I mean, I realize you've got really important things to do. You're working on the Roe v. Wade thing, but like, don't forget about me, brothers and sisters. That is, that is, that is not how God leads, and that is not how God leads you. And again, notice, Israel wasn't the one deciding. God was the one deciding when and where to go. Why does it matter? Why does it matter that God leads us? I think there's a couple of things that are just incredibly encouraging and powerful when we think about the, why it's significant that God, why, why does it matter that God leads, leads? First of all, we can know where we're going. You may not know where you're going a month from now or five years from now or 10 years from now, but brothers and sisters, you can know for sure that eternity is ahead, that the new heavens and new earth are promised for you, that God is bringing you as part of his people to you know, whatever the you know, Canaan land, Zion, there's all kind of words that we use to describe the eternal state, to describe the heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. You can know where you're going. If you have turned from your sin and put faith in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and to be your Savior, His Spirit is leading you. And He has, he has gone to prepare a place for us. He's bringing us to a prepared place. God is leading you ultimately, and God is leading you even here and even now. God would bring the people of Israel to certain rocks and certain uh, places in the desert and certain, right? Like he, God was leading them even as he was leading them to the ultimate place. And as he led them in the wilderness, he was teaching them. See, God is primarily teaching his people in the wilderness. And brothers and sisters, in case the illustration isn't obvious, we're in the wilderness right now. We're in the wilderness right now. We're in a, we're in a there, are, there are incredible gifts and joy and grace and blessings. Um, and the gifts that we have received from God, we are to thoroughly enjoy as from his hand. But we're also aware that the world is just broken. With the, the Andrew Peterson song, Do You Feel the World is Broken? Right? We, we do. We do. We're aware that the world is broken. Why does it matter that God leads us? Because we can know where we're going, both now and for eternity. And then secondly, we can trust that God, we, excuse me, we can trust that what is happening is happening for God's glory and for our good. You can trust, and I kind of already alluded to that when I said we can know where we're going. We can trust that what is happening is happening for the glory of God 
and for our own good. Take out your hymnals. I want you to see a song that I think really captures the truths of the, the glory that God is, uh, of, the, uh, of this truth that God is leading. Page 690. Paula, do you know how to play um, He Leadeth Me? Do you mind hopping up here? Okay. And I, we're going we're gonna to sing this here in just a second. This is not the concluding song of the sermon, but it's close. Page 690 says this, He leadeth me. Okay, so who's writing this? Joseph Gilmore. I don't know who that is. He leadeth me. And his, the, the first response of the writer of this hymn is to say, this is a blessed thought. Words with heaven, the words that he leads me, those are words that are filled with heavenly comfort, okay? Words with heavenly comfort fraught. If you want to write in your hymnal next to the word fraught, the word filled, because that's what it means. These words are filled with heavenly comfort. Whatever I do, wherever I be, it's God's hand that leads me. Verse 2, Lord, I would clasp thy hand in mine, nor ever murmur, right, that's complain, nor repine. There's another word that we don't use. The word repine means to fret. And if you want to write the word fret next to it, fine, right? Like the next person who reads this hymn is going to be thankful that you wrote that. Content, whatever lot I see, Right, Whatever my life circumstances are, I'm content because it's your hand that leads me. You will never leave me nor forsake me. Verse 3, and when, when my task on earth is done, when by your grace my victory is won, even death's cold wave, I will not flee. I don't have to run away from death because through Jordan, you lead me. You're leading me to the promised land. You're leading me to... Uh, the new heavens and new earth. You're leading me to Jerusalem. Let's, let's sing together. You can remain seated. Let's sing, sing together, He Leadeth Me.